so one of the most common objections that I hear to belief in the God of the Bible is that the God of the Old Testament seems to be like a different person than the God of the New Testament. I don't know if you've ever heard that before or if you've ever thought that yourself as you've read through the scriptures. The God of the Old Testament often seems to be very severe, whereas the God of the New Testament often is uh, described and characterized more by love. Uh, For example, in the Old Testament, a few weeks ago, we looked briefly at the flood of Noah, right? That that God looked at the earth and said, you know what? I'm just going to like wipe out everybody on the earth except for this one man and his family because of their sin. Later, God does a similar thing with Sodom and Gomorrah. Just, I mean, just off the face of the earth. They're gone. Later still, he he drowns the bulk of the Egyptian army in the Red Sea. So, So these are the things that we're seeing as we read through the Old Testament. There is horrific violence in the pages of the Old Testament. And and often, it is God himself facilitating such things, or it's God leading his people to facilitate such things. So as we read on in the story of Israel, they get into the promised land that God has given to them, and then God has them systematically go through and just destroy city after city after city. So we read this, right? And then we get into the New Testament, And we see things like, for God so loves the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shouldn't perish, but have eternal life. Or we read 1 John 4, and so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. Or Romans 8, which we've seen as we've studied through this book. Like, we see God's love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. So there's this paradox here. A lot of people say, how can this be the same guy? How can this be the same guy? But this question is really only based on a surface level reading of the Bible. Only based on a surface level reading of the Bible. The reality is this. There are two core attributes of God that have been prominently on display since the very beginning. His love and his justice. We've seen both of these things. We see them both throughout the Old Testament. We see them both throughout the New Testament, and they have been there prominently since the beginning. Think back to the garden. Think of the love and the care that God gives to the man and the woman. Even before the woman was around, God looked at the man and said, it's not good that he be alone. Like So God genuinely cares for his creation. He provided for them in the garden, but how swift was his justice when they turned their back on him. Love and justice. And and both of these things are true of God, and he is perfect in both of these things. So today, let's consider how we kind of reconcile those two things, because we're going to encounter both of these attributes today as we look at the story of Israel through the lens of Romans 11. And as we ask, what exactly is God up to here? Uh, Read along with me, Romans 11. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, 
God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That, that's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So don't become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? This is the word of the Lord. Did y'all get all that? It's a lot, right? It's a lot. So Paul is continuing um, in kind of the line of thinking and reasoning that he has been in for the last chapter or so. And I wish we had time this morning to do like a full recap of Romans. We're 11 chapters into this. There's so much that has come before us, and, and we don't have time to do like an in-depth recap. But I do want to just kind of quickly draw our attention back to some of the things that we've seen before. Um, there are a lot of different ways that theologians approach summarizing this letter. I think it can be really difficult to 
adequately summarize it because there is so much here. But I, I do love Dr. Tim Mackey's approach. He basically says that Paul began by reminding us that all of humanity is hopelessly trapped in sin. All of humanity is hopelessly trapped in sin and needs to be rescued. And yet God's righteous character has moved him to rescue the world through Jesus' death and resurrection. And ultimately, what God is doing in the process, and I think this is a key part of Romans that we can miss, part of what God is doing as he rescues his creation is he is creating a new faith-based multi-ethnic family of Abraham as his people. So historically, the Jews have been the people, the chosen ones. But what Paul is trying to show us is that God is doing this new thing through Christ. He is creating a new faith-based, multi-ethnic family of Abraham as his people. And so Paul has spent a good bit of time kind of explaining how that works. How does that happen? And so he's unpacked those theological concepts of justification and sanctification. But, but ultimately, he's trying to help his multi-ethnic readers in Rome, who were both Jews and Gentiles, understand what God is up to. Right? By showing us the righteousness of Christ, by letting us know that the righteousness of Christ is made available to us, and then showing us what this new people, empowered with his righteousness, are then sent to do. So over the last few weeks, Paul has turned the spotlight on the Jews, and he's asked, are these still God's people? Are these still God's people? His big question has been, man, if all of this is true about Jesus, if Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, then what, like, why do so many Jews not believe? Are these still God's people? And if they are, why is it that they are kind of like wholesale with the exception of a small group rejecting Jesus as the Messiah? And that's basically where we pick up today with this question that he asked, has God rejected his people? Has God rejected the Jews as his people? And Paul's answer, as you saw, absolutely not. Absolutely not. So let me remind us of something we've already seen, and then I want to pull up three truths um, from this long text, and then I want to wrap up by looking at a real small section of this. So first of all, back in chapter 9, Paul pointed out to us that God has made covenant promises to Abraham. God made covenant promises to Abraham. We saw that even in some of the other texts we read this morning, like being reminded, Moses going before God, and God, do you remember the promises that you've made to your people? When God wanted to just wipe everybody out yet again, Moses says, no, 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 remember what you've promised God. So, so God has made promises to the family of Abraham. But what Paul showed us back in chapter 9 is that God has always selected a subset of the family of Abraham through which his promises pass. So if you'll remember, this is what Paul basically said. He said, you had the family of Abraham, and then Abraham has two sons. One is Ishmael, and the other is Isaac. He chooses, he elects Isaac and not Ishmael to be the subset of the family of Abraham through which the covenant promises pass. And we go from there and we find who? We find Esau. And we find Jacob, who's also known as Israel. And 
Esau's the older one, Ishmael was the older one, and yet it is not through Esau, it is through Jacob that God elects for his covenant promises to continue. And we could go on and on from there. Like we could look back through the story of the Old Testament. God elects a Moabite woman named Ruth to be of the lineage that ultimately the Messiah will come from, and, and, and David. And then David himself. If you remember the story in Samuel, where David is anointed as king, um, God sends Samuel to the house of Jesse. And Jesse is this man who has all of these sons, right? David is like the youngest of all of them. And, and Samuel comes to them, and, and all, of these, all of these men, these young men begin to pass by Samuel, and he sees the oldest and he goes, this has to be our, our king. This has to be the one that God has sent me to anoint. And he's handsome and he's strong and strapping. And, and God says, listen, don't look at the outer appearance. He says, the Lord looks at the heart. And it's like he makes his way all the way down the ladder to David. And God chooses David. Where we are now here in the story of Romans, is we've gotten to this point where God is creating, as we said, this new multi-ethnic family of Abraham. And so now God's covenant promises are ultimately passing to Jesus' followers. And they're a part of a new covenant that Jesus has established through his death and resurrection in fulfillment of the old covenant promises to Abraham. And this is verses those who would be Jesus' rejectors. So in Paul's day, there are Gentiles who are accepting Jesus in mass and becoming Jesus' followers and are recipients of these incredible promises of blessing to be children of God, right, to be co-heirs with Christ. And then there are those Gentiles and Jews who are rejecting these promises, and they're choosing to believe in something the original covenant promises of Abraham, as seen through the law, which, which ultimately, Paul's making the case, those things are no longer in play anymore. They have been fulfilled by Christ, and now there is a new covenant that we access through faith in Christ. Okay, So, so that's basically the case that he's made to us. And to some extent, as, as God's covenant promises have passed through these people that he's chosen, you could say, as Paul does, that this is a remnant. He uses that word. And he cites a situation back in the story of Elijah, where once again, all of Israel has like turned against God. They're not following him. If you've read the Old Testament, it is this cycle over and over again that this kind of stuff happens. And we get to the story of Elijah, and Elijah's like, man, they're tearing down your altars, God, and they're doing all these terrible things. I feel like I'm the only one that actually loves you and worships you and believes you. And the Lord says, what? No, no, no. I've actually picked out some people who are my people. I've picked out a remnant who are my people. So that's what we have seen thus far. This is what God is doing. God is choosing how his promises pass down. And again, we could look at many other characters and stories that show us clearly that this is what God is doing. The promise of God, being God's people, being his children, being co-heirs with Christ, is passing ultimately to Jesus' followers, 
of all ethnicities, of all ethnicities, not just Jews. So when the Bible says things like, for God so loved the world, readers of that shouldn't just think of geographically the world. Readers of that should think, oh, not just Jews, right? Everybody. God loves every ethnicity. God loves every people. And he is ultimately calling all to faith in Christ. Notice our parable we read this morning. How did it end? Many are called. Many are called, but few are chosen. So, this isn't some pivot on God's part. God doesn't choose to do this as a plan B because the Israelites just weren't faithful enough. Paul has shown us clearly over the last few weeks, quoting the Old Testament directly, that this has always been the plan, that this has always been the plan, and it was prophesied that these promises would pass on to Gentiles. People who weren't called my people, I will call my people. That's what he said. So this is what God has sovereignly elected to do. Even God's original promise to Abraham that all people would be blessed through him, not just his own people, is coming to fruition. So three key points I want us to see in today's text. God has not rejected his people, meaning God has not, in a wholesale way, just said Jews are ineligible for salvation, right? He hasn't done that. Secondly, God can use evil for good. God can use evil for good, and we see him do this intentionally over and over again in Scripture. And then finally, God is both kind and severe, according to this text. So Paul makes it clear, guys, God has not rejected Israel in the sense that salvation is unavailable to them. Now, many had rejected him, but Paul says, just look at me. Like, I'm an example of the fact that God has not wholesale rejected the nation of Israel. I am a Jew. I, like, I, I come from this, like, grand Jewish heritage that Paul outlines in some of his New Testament epistles. He was a Pharisee. He cared deeply about the law of God. And, and, and he says, this is something that God has always done. The whole of Israel has never worshipped him appropriately. We saw that this morning. After all of the incredible things that they had seen God do and leading them out of e Egypt and taking them into the wilderness and providing food. Like, here's what I think about in the story of the golden calf. On the day that they made a golden calf and bowed down to worship it, that morning they woke up and collected manna. Isn't that incredible to think about? The morning that they bowed down, or the day that they bowed down to this calf, that morning they got up and collected the food God had provided to them. And yet the moment that a human being goes missing, Moses... He's been on the mountain hearing from God for 40 days. The moment he goes missing and they go, he's dead. There's no way he's coming back. Despite everything they've seen, let's worship something we can see. Let's worship something that seems tangible, that I can touch, that I can make. And it sounds so crazy to us, and yet we do the exact same thing. If you don't think the exact same thing is happening right now in this political season, you're missing it. What can we put our hope in? What can we put our hope in? I want somebody I can see and hear. I want somebody I agree with. 
I want to put my hope in somebody I agree with. Because a lot of times God is doing things that, that I don't know what he's up to. God has not rejected his people. It's hard for us to fathom. I think we naturally think that God can only, you know, use positive situations or obedient people. But yet, even in the midst of great disobedience, God works and moves and does incredible things. Paul says it's because of the Jews' rejection of Christ that the gospel of Jesus has been made available to the Gentiles. And he says, I'm actually hoping that the Jews are going to become jealous, right? Because we're not, we're not talking about some other God here. We're talking about Yahweh God, the God of the Jews. I'm hoping that as all these Gentiles come to faith in Christ, as they see all of the incredible blessings that come to their lives as a result of this, and the joy and the peace and the hope that they have, the Jews are actually going to look at that and go, gosh, I'm breaking my back over here trying to follow the law and trying to be self-righteous and perfect before God, and I'm failing miserably in that, trying to put up this facade, but yet these people claim to be following the same God, and yet they're not doing any of this stuff. I hope they'll become jealous, and that God would actually use that to draw them to him. So, in other words, God has used this rejection of him for good. God, ha God has used what are ultimately sinful and evil intentions for good. I don't know if you remember back in the story of Joseph. We read this a few weeks ago. Joseph's brothers have these evil intentions for Joseph. They hate him. They want to kill him. But they, instead, they don't kill him. They sell him into slavery. And later, after a famine, years later, they all wind up in Egypt together. And yet, Joseph's here in this position of high power and prominence within the court of Pharaoh. And his brothers, when they learn it's him, are scared to death because they go, oh, he's just going to kill us. He's going to murder us all now because of what we've done to him. And know what he says? What you intended for evil, the Lord intended for good. What you intended for evil, the Lord intended for good. In other words, you did something terrible. And God has used that to do something incredible. That's how powerful he is. That's how large his scope is. How big his view of things is. And guys, there are also implications here in the political realm for today, right? Because what scripture teaches us is God is the one who lifts up. God is the one who tears down. God is the one who puts people into positions of authority and power. And as we look back, not only in the scriptures, but throughout human history, we've seen that there are things that mankind has intended for evil that God has ultimately used for good and for his glory. And Ultimately, those are things that are best seen in hindsight over a long period of time because when you're in the middle of it, it doesn't make any sense. How could God use this? Because our scope, our view is not what his is, right? It's not as large. And so here's, here's one thing, just, and let me just say this and I'll move on from that particular point. In any political season, and, and presidential elections are especially hard for the church, I think, but in any political season, the question that we have to answer is not who is the best candidate. That's an important question. It's not the primary question. The question we have to answer is where is your hope placed? Where is your hope placed? Because if our hope is in the Lord, then our hope is in a God who is actively involved and is sovereign and is over all of this. 
And there is no one that rises to a position of authority or power outside of his purview. And I would even say, I think based on scripture, outside of his working. And yet we don't understand it. Why is this evil Pharaoh on the throne tormenting God's people? And yet God uses this evil king to accomplish his purposes. What about this guy who's basically an imposter in the disciples of Christ who says he's one of them, but he's not really one of them, and and at a moment's notice decides for some money he's going to give over the Messiah to his opponents? What he intended for evil, the Lord intended for good. I don't understand that. I can't see all of that. I can't even connect the dots on that. Like, why that way? Why not some other way? Surely there's something easier, but this is what God has done. Where is your hope placed? Is your hope in him? Because if it's not, and your hope's in these temporal things that he ultimately controls and manipulates and changes, then your hope is in something less than. One key characteristic throughout the scriptures, you see this in the Proverbs over and over, you see it in the Psalms, do not put your trust in men. Put your trust in the Lord. Don't put your trust in chariots. Don't put your trust in armies. Put your trust in the Lord. I think if there's anything that we can hold to as we walk through the next couple of months, through all of the vitriol and outrage and all this stuff, is that our hope is in Christ. In the midst of turmoil, in the midst of uncertainty, our hope is in Christ. So, God has not rejected his people. God still wants Jews to be saved through Christ. God can use evil for good. And then finally, God is both kind and severe. God is both kind and severe. So Paul makes this fascinating statement in verse 22. Note then the kindness and severity of God. And and let's just do a little quick word study here. The Greek word that's rendered kindness in the ESV is a word that could also be translated goodness or excellent. So God is both excellent, God is both good, God is kind, but then there's this word for severity. I'll write it up here. Apotomia. This Greek word that's translated severity. And what's interesting about this word is the literal translation of it is sheerness, that God is sheer. And so the visual picture here is that of a cliff, like a sheer drop-off, a sheer cliff. And so the idea is that you're climbing a mountain, you're on solid ground, and then suddenly everything drops off. And it's this chasm, and it's immediate, and it's sudden, it's abrupt, it's harsh. So God is both good and excellent and kind, and he is a sudden chasm, right? We saw that again in the garden how he had given all of these things for his people. We see it with the Israelites in the desert. I'm giving you water and food and quail, and I'm providing for you, and I've saved you, and I've destroyed these other armies that are after you, and and yet the moment you turn aside from me, it is sheer. It is abrupt. So don't miss this, because this is who he is. Paul is calling us to pay special attention to this. God is infinitely loving, and he doesn't play. He's infinitely loving, and he doesn't play. God creates the man and the woman. God brings his people out of Egypt. But then because of their sin, 
He doesn't play. Look at verse 17. Paul gives us the metaphor of a cultivated olive tree, one grown in a garden that is cared for by a gardener. And here's what he says. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, at this point he's made it clear, I'm talking to you Gentiles. He says, you are a wild olive shoot. You come from a wild olive tree, not this beautiful cultivated olive tree in a garden. You were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. By the branches, he means the natural branches of the tree, the Jews, that God says, I've broken those off. Don't be arrogant toward those branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. This is a cultivated olive tree. Last week we touched on another garden narrative. There's so many of them in the New Testament. But we talked about the parable of the sower, right? Guy goes out and scatters seed. The seed falls on all kinds of different soil. And we said it's not the purview of the sower to make a judgment call on the like, content of the soil or the fertileness of the soil. It's the purview of the sower to scatter seed. And, and then the Lord is the one who like waters and grows, that's the case that Jesus makes to us. We looked at that last week. And, and one of the things that we saw as a lesson of that parable, and, and the New Testament in general teaches this, is that people of true faith persevere in Christ. So the lesson of the parable of the sower is that the seed falls on three different kinds of soil that ultimately don't prove to be fertile soil. And yet, some of those types of soil, it looks like in the early stages, like, oh no, this is going to cause the seed to flourish. But either the soil was rocky or there was real, no real depth to the soil. It's only the seed that falls on true fertile soil that grows and perseveres. Like it grows and remains. Whereas other ones kind of shoot up real quick, but then ultimately die out. They ultimately fall away. They ultimately shrivel up. Do you notice how that applies to what we're talking about today. This idea that true people of faith keep going in allegiance to Jesus. No matter what's going on, no matter what's happening in the world, no matter what kind of turmoil or hardship is coming in your life, no matter what suffering you experience, we keep going in Christ. Paul's teaching here is that the root of the true olive tree is Jesus himself. Like Jesus is the one who is nourishing this thing and providing for this thing. There are some natural branches of the tree that have been broken off. The ones that should be here have chosen not to be here. They haven't believed, Paul said. They haven't placed their faith in Christ, and so they're not here. But then there are these wild branches, the Gentiles, which have been grafted in. If you've ever seen plant grafting before, it's like literally a, a branch has been cut off. It's been attached to the tree. It's been wrapped up, and then over time, it becomes a part of the tree, even though it wasn't there originally. That's kind of how grafting works. So God is the gardener in this scenario, 
He's cultivating this olive tree, and he's making it into what he wants it to be. So Gentiles, don't ever be arrogant about being a part of the tree because you didn't jump off some other tree and get here on your own. You didn't break yourself off and attach yourself to this tree. No, no, no. Someone else has done this. There is a gardener, and there is the nurturing, nourishing root who is Christ. And here's the thing. The gardener can just as easily break you off, cast you off, in the same way that he did to the natural branches, he says. And, and Paul says, look, if he would do that to the natural branches, you better believe he would do it to the wild branches. But, but also, don't miss this. He is both good and severe. This isn't arbitrary. It's not capricious. He's not doing this on a whim, right? This directly relates to obedience. God is love, yes, but God is also just, and he demands our obedience, and his kindness and severity somehow live in harmony with each other. What remains, though, guys, is a hybrid tree. It's a hybrid tree. It's a tree that's been constructed by the gardener. The root is Christ. The original branches are Israel. But now it is this new thing with a new people who have been grafted into it. And to further drive home the point that God has not fully rejected Israel, he says, listen, if you can be grafted into this tree as a wild olive shoot Gentiles, then you better believe that God can pick up these natural branches and put them right back in. God has the power to do that. So don't discount the gardener's ability. So where does this leave us today? God is not done growing this tree. God is not done growing this tree. And as we saw last week, we should be praying for the branches that are not currently grafted in. That's what Paul says he's doing for his own people, the natural branches. He says, I'm praying for them. In fact, I'm trying to intentionally do things so that they might even be jealous and turn to Christ as a result, that, that God's Spirit might somehow use that. We should also be praying for those who we know who are not a part of this, who are not experiencing the nourishment and nurturing of the root of Christ. We should also be sharing the truth of Christ with them, showing them what the truth of Christ is all about, what it looks like, what it sounds like, what it tastes like in your life. Here's how you know that a grafted branch is healthy. What do you think? How do you know that a grafted branch is healthy? Because you can, you can wrap it up, and it'll, for a while, kind of look like what it was originally what you, you know, when you cut it off. But how do you know that it's actually becoming a part of the tree and becoming healthy? What does it do? It bears fruit. It bears fruit. It sprouts a new leaf. It shoots off a new branch of its own. It grows an apple. It bears fruit. This is what the gardener's looking for. Any branches that don't bear fruit, I cut off and throw into the fire. That's what Jesus says. What is your status as a grafted branch? What is your status? You hang in there, sickly looking, producing nothing, not much happening, 
Or are you flourishing in your new environment, in your new home with the nourishment of Christ? Your health, spiritually, emotionally, mentally, physically, I think your health is directly connected to how fully you rely on the main root. A branch cannot sustain itself. We did not get here on our own. It is through his love. But don't forget that he's also severe. Don't forget that he's also called us to fear him. He says, don't be afraid of men. Be afraid of the one who can kill the body and the soul. The more that your livelihood is directly tapped into Christ, the healthier and the more fruitful you will be. And also, the more that we really see this for what it is, I think the greater our humility will be. How dare we ever boast about being a part of the family of God? Instead, let us receive it with great humility and also recognize that God has sent us out. God has sent us out among so many who have no connection to this whatsoever so that they might be grafted in. Let's pray. God, we love you and we thank you. We thank you for the importance of these truths, how you're shaping us and guiding us. We pray today, God, that we truly grasp the beauty of what you're doing, creating this worldwide, multi-ethnic family. And, and in doing so, you are fulfilling your promise to Abraham to bless all the nations through his lineage. And so we give you praise. We thank you. We could not do this on our own. We could not be a part of the tree on our own. It is only through Christ. And so we worship you today, Father. Motivate us by your great love for us and also by your severity. Motivate us to step out in faith, to love our neighbors in the way that we love ourselves and to share the truth and beauty of your gospel with them. Empower us with your spirit. Fill us with your truth, Father. In your name we pray. Amen.